0: Chapter 4 The Purpose of Writing This Book. From the preceding pages of this book, the reader or listener, if reading or listening in the manner recommended by Maria von Trapp in The Sound of Music, by starting at the very beginning, it's a very good place to start, will know that in five years, four anti corruption conferences were held in three African cities by two institutes with one overarching aim, to counter the corrupt. In 2019, a complementary workshop was held on the thorny topic of corruption in the judiciary in Durban, South Africa. A special excursus chapter on that workshop appears at the end of this book. The resolutions and recommendations made at the conferences are set out in chapter one above, and provide insight to the topics that came up for discussion, the themes that were explored, and the expertise that was brought to bear. There can be no doubt that worldwide corruption presents a problem capable of thwarting the achievement of the UN Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. Corruption is a threat to the enjoyment of peace that is secure, progress that is sustainable and prosperity that is equitably shared. The extent of corruption in 2020 has been remarked on by judges Goldstone and Wolfe in their advocacy of the establishment of an international anti-corruption court. They note in an article published in the Boston Globe that corruption has devastating consequences for human health. As the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights said in 2013, corruption kills. The amount of money stolen through corruption is enough to feed the world's hungry 80 times over. Corruption denies them their right to food and in some cases their right to life. One third of the funds allocated in 2014 by Sierra Leone to combat Ebola could not be accounted for, although some funds were found in the bank accounts of an individual involved in the effort. Similarly, the Minister of Health in the Democratic Republic of Congo was found to have embezzled more than $400,000 from that country's Ebola response fund. In 2015, Saudi Arabia suspended contracts with $266 for the prevention of infection by the MERS virus because, due to corruption, the required work was not being done. About $176 million had already been spent. The close connection between grand corruption and harm to human health is vividly demonstrated by the experience of Angola. President José Eduardo dos Santos, who held office for 38 years until 2017, made his daughter Isabel the head of the national oil company and the wealthiest woman in Africa, worth more than $2 billion. At the same time, Angola has had the highest percentage of children of any country who do not live to the age of five. Despite Angola's vast natural resources and wealth, more than half of the country's population have no access to health care. There will be no treatment for them as the coronavirus hits Angola. Grand corruption does not flourish because of lack of laws. There are 187 nations party to the United Nations Convention Against Corruption. Almost all of them have laws prohibiting extortion, bribery, money laundering, and misappropriation of national resources. They have an international obligation to enforce those laws against their corrupt leaders. However, kleptocrats enjoy impunity in their own countries because they control the administration of justice. They will not permit the prosecution and punishment of their collaborators and themselves. These sentiments echo the majority judgment in the second and most famous Glenister case, an appeal heard by the Constitutional Court in South Africa in which it was held that there can be no gainsaying that corruption threatens to fell at the knees virtually everything we hold dear and precious in our hard-won constitutional order. It blatantly undermines the democratic ethos the institutions of democracy, the rule of law, and the foundational values of our nascent constitutional project. It fuels maladministration and public fraudulence and imperils the capacity of the state to fulfill its obligations to respect, protect, promote, and fulfill all the rights enshrined in the Bill of Rights. When corruption and organized crime flourish, Sustainable development and economic growth are stunted, and in turn, the stability and security of society are put at risk. The main purpose of this book is to tease out from the deliberations of conference goers, from the presentations of learned judges, academics and civil society leaders, that which is of relevance to the ordinary reader in the battle that needs to be waged against the corrupt, wherever they may be found, and no matter what their station or rank in society. The cancer that is corruption is eating the life force out of constitutionalism and accountability. It diverts funds meant to alleviate the lot of the poor and disadvantaged to those who greedily prefer to fritter their loot away on fast cars, slow horses, and loose living. Corruption is a force of destruction. It is not a sustainable activity. No matter how nervous politicians or public servants may be about the security of their position, there ought to be no excuse and no reason for acting corruptly to feather one's own nest at the expense of the poor politics and the career in the public administration or state-owned enterprises are meant to be opportunities to serve the public good with honor and diligence. Instead, too many choose their careers as if the profit motive of the world's business and commerce industry and mining is the be-all and end-all. Those who have a desire to profit from their work have no place in public service in the broadest sense. They should go into business instead because their role is service to the public, not profit-making. When the Kodra Doudna-Struftling celebrated the 10th anniversary of its Rule of Law program in sub-Saharan Africa in 2016, Gail Washkansky, the Operations Officer of Accountability Now, as she then was, made a speech in which she remarked, As long ago as March 2nd to 8th, 2013, a leading article in The Economist made this plea. Only if Africans raise their ambitions still further will they reach their full potential. They need to take on the difficult job of building infrastructure, rooting out corruption, and clearing the tangle of government regulation that is still holding them back. And they should hurry. The problem identified in March 2013 was referred to in a leading article in The Economist again in April 16th to the 22nd, 2016. African governments need to keep up the hard slog of improving the basics. Bad roads, grass officials and tariff barriers still hobble trade between African countries which is only 11% of total African exports and imports. Improving that means investing in infrastructure, fighting corruption, and freer trade. Africa's past has long been defined by commodities, but its future rests on the productivity of its people. By 2050, the UN predicts that there will be 2.5 billion Africans quarter of the world's population. Given good governance, they will prosper. The alternative is too dire to imagine. It can be seen from the recurring references to corruption in the commentary of this publication that progress in dealing with corruption in Africa has been slow. This is unfortunate because corruption has the potential to derail a peaceful, prosperous, Progressive future for the continent. Later in her speech, Washkansky says Poverty reduction is at the heart of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. The first SDG target is to eradicate extreme poverty for all people everywhere. Goal 16 introduces a framework for improving governance. New Institute for Security Studies research tests the impact of better governance on reducing poverty and improving human development in Africa. Results show that by 2050, 60 million fewer people could be living in poverty compared to the current development trajectory. Improving governance also creates significant gains in gross domestic product, GDP per capita, and reductions in infant mortality. The oft identified and so called triple threats, or threatening troika, facing Africa and South Africa have been named as poverty, inequality, and unemployment. Inequality is perpetuated and exacerbated as a byproduct of poverty. In the present context, in which the effect of corruption on poverty is under examination, it is perhaps more appropriate. To define corruption in the public sector more simplistically as theft from the poor. This is because corrupt activities have the effect of depriving the poor of the finances and resources that are diverted into corrupt activities, whether directly or indirectly, as a consequence of the inordinate amount of official energy that has to be expended on covering up past corrupt activities and engaging in them at present. Whilst it is true that much of the corruption in the private sector does not impact directly on the poor and on poverty alleviation strategies and practices, the indirect effect of private sector corruption is a smaller fiscal catchment area, less tax recovery by government, and accordingly, fewer resources can be financed out of the fiscal pool. Washgansky concluded that Combating corruption and fighting poverty are in many ways two sides of the same coin. The better the results on the former, the rosier the prospects for the latter. Even if only tender fraud and corruption are eliminated, this would free up 30 billion rand a year in South Africa To be spent on more worthy causes than the feathering of the nests of the corrupt among us. One of the tenets of Amartya Singh's capability approach is the distribution of opportunities within society. It emphasizes functional capabilities, substantive freedoms such as the ability to live to old age, engage in economic transactions or participate in political activities. These are construed in terms of the substantive freedoms people have reason to value. Poverty is understood as capability deprivation. Sen is particularly concerned with those opportunities that are strongly influenced by social circumstances and public policy. The poor are most frequently forced to resort to corrupt practices where marginalization and political, economic, and social exclusion are highest, thereby severely limiting their substantive freedoms and capability. Combating poverty and corruption means addressing and overcoming the barriers that stand in the way of citizen engagement and a state's accountability. Corruption is destroying Africa's future because it is a symptom of governance that is lacking in integrity, accountability, and responsiveness to the needs of ordinary people. Corruption is a crime and needs to be dealt with by the state through effective and independent anti-corruption machinery of the kind ordered in the Glenister litigation. The Glenister cases are accountability now's gift to all Africans who seek to end the culture of impunity that invariably accompanies corruption in high places and to build a peaceful, progressive and prosperous future for our continent. The situation in Africa and the world has not improved since 2016 when Washkansky spoke. Similarly, as regards corruption in general, the need to counter the corrupt is at the heart of the work that went into this book. Making the parameters clearer and offering strategies for countering corruption are the first steps towards the proper realization of the UN SDGs, especially number 16, which is concerned with the promotion of strong institutions and good governance. Bringing the possibility of countering the corrupt to the public consciousness is a first step in the creation of the groundswell of political will necessary to achieve a world in which corruption does not disfigure every effort for good that is made. The purpose of this book is to arm engaged and participative citizens everywhere with the knowledge that enables them to counter the activities of the corrupt in every aspect of their lives. Stimulation of the political will to counter the corrupt is at the heart of the endeavor.